Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about an amazing true crime podcast. Jamie Snow is serving life in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit. Now, listen as he tells the story from Stateville Prison in Crest Hill, Illinois, in the Snow Files. Season 1 focused on the trial and presented new witness evidence and taped interviews never before revealed, while Season 2 covered forensics. In September, a judge ruled Jamie should be given nearly 8,000 documents that were withheld from him and his attorneys. This is the first time he has received relief in 22 years. The final season of The Snow Files, which is now available, wraps it up with a deep dive into the alternative suspects and other wrongful convictions in McLean County that were presided over by the same state's attorney. Together with co-hosts Bruce Fisher, Tammy Alexander, Leslie Pires, and Ray Wilson, listen to Jamie tell a story about his wrongful conviction guaranteed to make you laugh, cry, and shock you to the core. He not only tells you his story, but he interacts with listeners and answers questions. New episodes of The Snow Piles are released every other week, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Or download Jamie's case files and listen directly at snowfiles.net. My name is Charlie Moss, and I've been a freelance journalist and writer for more than 10 years. I've written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, and other publications. I also used to work for an online camping magazine called The Dirt. It was there that I wrote about a haunted campground just outside of Stanton, Virginia. The more I dug into the story, the more I realized that this wasn't just a simple Halloween ghost tale. It was something much deeper, much more profound than I ever imagined and I've spent the last three years finding out as much as I can about what happened at Braley Pond. This is Episode 5, Haunted Stanton. It actually took me about two years after Chris was killed for me to return to Braley Pond, at which, I mean, it, it took me two years to deal with the grief of this whole event and everything that our family had had to go through. And when I finally went back out there, um, I've only been the one time because it was, um, I don't really know how to put that in words. And I went in and I just had this overwhelming feeling of negativity and I went to the actual shore of the pond where he was killed and just felt this violent sense of nausea come on me and a sense of danger. I felt like I was in danger, that there was something there that was very harmful to me. And and I felt a force push me, like literally, it was, it was palpable, like as if someone actually had their hands on me and pushed me out of that whole area back to my vehicle and 
all I could do was just drive away as fast as I could. That was Kimberly Tinsley describing the first time she went to Braley Pond after her son Seth took part in the gang-related murder of Christopher Kennedy back in 2003. While Braley Pond is considered a hotbed of paranormal activity, the whole Shenandoah Valley is filled with UFO reports, mysterious lights in the forest called Foxfire, and other unexplained occurrences. According to a 2015 Augusta Chronicle newspaper article, there have been 71 UFOs reported in Richmond, Columbia, Washington, and Aiken County since 2006. And then there are the alleged Bigfoot prints collected by Chris Pugh near Braley Pond I mentioned back at the beginning of episode one. The city of Stanton itself is considered a pretty active place when it comes to hauntings. A lot of that is due to its complicated past. Local paranormal investigator Curtis Lee Weimer tells me. Um, yeah, I would say Stanton Pound for Pound is probably the one, one of the most, the whole city is probably fairly haunted. This is the oldest settlement west of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the entire country. We've been here since 1738. When Curtis says we, he means his white ancestors, the Beverleys, the family that founded what was originally called Beverly's Mill Place. William Beverly, a wealthy British immigrant, moved to the area with his family in 1747 with a land grant from the English Crown. The town was later renamed after Rebecca Stanton, the wife of Colonel Lieutenant Governor Sir William Gooch, and served as the original capital for what was then the Northwest Territory until 1771, and then briefly as the capital of Virginia. But according to Curtis, and counter to what other local historians say, there were Native American tribes in the Shenandoah Valley that date back thousands of years. Some Weimar claims to be a descendant of, like the Monacan Nation and the Buffalo Ridge Cherokee tribes. But like too many instances in American history, they were wiped out by white settlers, then swept under the rug. The town's got kind of a sordid history anyway, because when Lord Beverly came here, he claimed that there weren't any Indians here, which was a lie. So the whole town was, was founded and predicated on a lie. So that's, pro that's part of its history. Curtis has been investigating paranormal activity in and around the Shenandoah Valley for about 11 years. He was a member of what is now called the Black Raven Paranormal Society, which you might remember hearing about back in episode one. Shay Willis was once a member, though not at the same time as Curtis, and Marty Siebel, who first introduced me to Shay, currently runs it. Now he's a member of the Werewolves, that's W-O-O-F-S, Werewolves, a group of self-described urban explorers that use a dog sled team of four huskies to investigate the haunted places few other paranormal teams have gone. We don't hunt these commercial places. Um... That, that most of the teams do. You know, all the teams that you see on TV, the places that they're going to are commercial. You know, you walk up the door, you buy a ticket, and you go in and hunt. The, regardless of how they're displaying it on television, we go out to places that nobody's been to. And that's probably the biggest difference between us. You know, we're hunting places that we found out in the middle of the woods. Curtis will be the first to tell you he's not very popular with the rest of the ghost hunting community around Stanton. And that's because of this. Most ghost hunters are being deceived. They're talking to demons. They're not going to admit that, but that's what they're doing. And that's a game. And I'm not real popular in the paranormal community because of my views. I, of course, asked Curtin to elaborate on this. This is probably where I get into disagreement with a lot of um, paranormal investigators. A lot of, a lot of my, a lot of experiences, a lot of activity I've found, um, and even even things where people think it's the ghost. Um, a lot of things I have boiled down to being um, demonic activity. Um, whether anybody likes that or not, there's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is. Um, I've got this belief that good people go to heaven, and the only people that I can talk to that are here are people that are in hell. 
Hell's on earth, right? Even the Bible tells us that. And I'm not a I'm not a religious person. I've never been baptized. I'm actually part Native American. Um, I was not a religious person before I started investigating, but it's forced me. Um, it's basically forced me to believe in the devil. And I've got to hope that if there's a devil, there's a God too. Now, I know this is a podcast about ghosts and large, weird energy worms that attach themselves to people's backs. But even this perspective threw me for a loop. Ghosts are actually demons trapped in hell, which happens to be right here on planet Earth. That just sounds so depressing. So even those who believe in ghosts and swear they've talked to loved ones after they've passed actually communicated with hellish demons instead? I don't know if I can allow myself to believe that. I mean, if I believed in ghosts, that is. Marty Siebel is probably one of the most well-known paranormal experts in the Stanton area. Not only does he investigate possible hauntings, but he and other members of Black Raven Paranormal lead the popular Ghosts of Stanton walking tour, which chronicles the city's haunted history. He also has his own ghost hunting show called the Black Raven Chronicles on Amazon Prime. The group has been together since 2005, and we started as the Shenandoah Valley Paranormal Society. That's what Shade was a part of. Um, and then later on, it converted over to Black Raven Paranormal. I think we've been under that now for about seven years. We uh, we've done a combination. We've done a combination of investigations where we've traveled to a lot of the big name locations. That's kind of a, uh, a staple of, our, of what we do. We do uh, a lot of historic locations here locally uh, when, they're, when they're available, uh, and we do take on some residential and business locations. Marty credits old episodes of The Twilight Zone he used to watch as a kid as his gateway into the paranormal, and he's been at it for a long time. Well, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years now, and just a, started as just a simple hobby, staying at haunted B&Bs and taverns or whatnot. <clears throat> Still do that to this day. Um, but I'm, I'm real big on the history and research. I mean, I like to really tie the two together. Pretty grounded as a paranormal investigator, which pisses a lot of people off in the field because, you know, the field has changed so much since when I started. There's paranormal groups just about everywhere. Anybody that's got a Facebook page has pretty much got a paranormal group. And a lot of them uh, jump to conclusions about evidence and data, and I prefer not to do that. Though Marty and Curtis don't agree on much when it comes to the paranormal, they do agree that Stan is a pretty active place when it comes to hauntings and mysterious occurrences. In all honesty, Stanton's very active. Uh, and I'm basing that on some of the experiences of data that we've been able to record at different places. And I'm basing it on people's personal eyewitness, very credible uh, um, experiences that have been relayed to us through the tours or whether or not we've done an investigation. Very credible people, and I believe them, genuinely believe them what they, they're telling me, at least the people I've been associated with. And uh, I, I tell you, a few of the most active places that we get a lot of reports on or that we've had things happen, number one is the depot station. The Stanton Train Depot has a long and tragic history. Part of the Virginia Central Railroad, the depot opened in 1854 and along with the Wharf Commercial District surrounding it, brought an economic boom to the city. During the Civil War, Union troops set the Stanton Train Depot on fire, killing several Confederate soldiers and completely destroying it. A new train depot was built after the Civil War, but in 1890, it was destroyed again, this time by a runaway train. Just west of the depot, there's about four miles of track that twist, turn, and drop about 80 feet before reaching the station. The conductor lost control of the Cincinnati Express train and it crashed into the depot, killing 19-year-old opera singer Myrtle Ruth Knox. The ghost of Knox has been spotted wandering around in her nightgown around the depot, which was rebuilt once again. 
and an apparition of a Confederate soldier who was supposedly struck and killed by an oncoming train has been seen stumbling along the tracks. Um, we've had numerous reports there of people seeing apparitions, whether it be a soldier or a young female in a light blue or somewhat semi-white dress. We've had uh, people that have gotten audio clips down there. The train depot was rebuilt yet again and used until the 1960s, then fell into disrepair, only to be rebuilt due to another fire in 1987. While the former passenger and freight buildings of the depot have been turned into restaurants, the loading platform is still used by the adjacent Amtrak station to this day. While Marty's assertion that the Stanton train depot is the most haunted area in the city, Curtis believes there's another that takes the top spot. Yeah, the clock tower, I'd say, downtown is probably the most haunted building and the most known that I know of as far as activity. Middle of town, directly up the hill from the train depot. Built in 1890, the clock tower building on Beverly Street is the centerpiece of downtown Stanton. Its limbing presence and Queen Anne architectural style both draws your eye and complements its neighboring structures. It was originally built to house a YMCA, complete with a gym, running track, a lending library, and meeting rooms on the upper floors and at street level retail space. Over the years, a Woolworths, apartments, and restaurants have occupied this space. There was a woman who jumped out a window here a couple of years ago because she was hearing, apparently was being haunted and hearing spirits. Um, I've had I've know several people who've lived there who've had experiences. The clock tower building was featured in an episode of the Black Raven Chronicle show I mentioned earlier in this episode. Before it became the clock tower eats and sweets a couple of years back, the historic building housed the clock tower restaurant and bar. In the episode, Marty interviewed the former owners John and Kim DeGordo about some of the mysterious happenings there. We have found a lot of times, you know, being here that things do happen. I am not. A believer, or I wasn't, I guess, but I definitely don't disbelieve because things that happened here, you know, they're just a little strange. I was sitting there and a glass fell off right from that corner there. You know, our, you know one of our wine glasses hangs up. And, you know, I, look, and I, I heard it fall and I'm going, you know, I said, uh, Jill, be careful. You, you know, I don't want you to cut yourself. She goes, John, I was nowhere near that glass. Uh, it was a afternoon and I was waiting on tables as well. I left the table, walked behind the bar to get drinks or whatever, and one of the wine glasses came out of its rack. John, I'm telling you that glass was there. Please look at the cameras. It so happens we have cameras that shoot right across there. So we went in the back and started looking, and this is on camera. We noticed that the last row here, there's, there's no customers, there's no bartender. And the last row there was, uh, one glass and the one glass you can see it being hit and it rocks all the way to the end and it stops then around two to three seconds later it gets hit again and flies off and then we looked at that about maybe 30 times it's like i have no idea how that happened now the other things that happened is we'll come in we used to come in and these pictures used to be on the floor but not next to the wall but in the middle of the floor like somebody came through and hit those so we, we actually stopped putting glass in the pictures because they keep breaking. So um, we did that. And then there was an incident with uh, a Cisco uh, delivery guy. You know, they come in and deliver at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. They got a key and all. They come in. So he came in, <clears throat> started, started putting stuff away in our, in our walk-in. All of a sudden, he hears a noise in the back. So he flicks the light to see what's going on, walks in the back, and there's this ladle just floating in midair. <laughs> he gets freaked out. 
takes off, has never been back since. Tom Barry is another Stanton-based paranormal investigator. She knows both Curtis and Marty from her work with Black Raven Paranormal. Like Shay, when it comes to hauntings, she considers herself an energy worker. Rather than try to explain it myself, I'll let Dawn tell you what that entails. My name is Dawn Barry, and I'm a spiritual counselor and hypnotherapist. And um, since I was 15, I've also been um, researching paranormal phenomenon. Dawn has a master's certification in Reiki, a Japanese method of alternative medicine that uses something called universal energy to heal patients' physical or emotional wounds. And um, that will, in essence, give me an idea of what type of um, residual things are happening there. Here's another clip from the same clock tower investigation with Marty that will help illustrate how Dawn uses her abilities. Here, she's using the energy of the building to locate some of the spirits that hang out there. Okay, so there's, there's four of them, and they all kind of scattered. Two went up and that way, mm -hmm. and two went this way. So, um... Adults? Yes. And one of those men, I feel like he, he was killed. He's not making me feel like he was killed within the building, maybe right outside or around the corner or something, but I feel him going um, around the apartments upstairs. Mm -hmm. um, but I pick him up on the stairs behind you. He seems like he um, is aware of the fact that I see him and doesn't want to talk to me. Dawn mentions other places she's investigated around Stanton and the region. Though she says the town, at least in her experience, isn't as active when it comes to paranormal activity as other cities she's visited. I've investigated a number of different places in the city. Um, the American Hotel, the Clock Tower, the Train Depot, the Kaufman House, um, the New Beginnings Grocery Store up the street. Uh, there is a lot, a lot of activity um, happening across the city and in comparison to play other places that I have lived I would say that there is a lot of phenomenon going, going on here and I think that, that when you start to look at um, types of locations and why they're having the activity that they're having. I think Stanton has a little bit of a lot of different things going on. For instance, the um, the limestone content in the ground in Stanton is extremely high. And, you know, quartz and that type of stone have the tendency to um, enhance energy, especially of that nature. Um, then there's flowing water almost around the entire city underneath it. Um, that tends to enhance energy as well. Um, but then there's a lot of trauma here in Stanton because, you know, the, the, the Civil War, both sides kind of met each other here too for, for a small amount of time. And things like that, trauma um, of that nature doesn't just dissipate for some strange reason and so I would I would say that that um, there's a lot of reasons why I think that Stanton is definitely more active and and it does seem to be. 
Ask Dawn about Braley Pond and if she's encountered anything strange there. Yeah, um, I'm extremely familiar with that area. Um, I kind of try to disappear to the woods um, periodically to kind of wind down, and that is essentially out in that direction where we're going. But yes, Braley Pond, um, I am familiar with the experiences there. Um, more along the lines of battery drains, um, equipment failure, and um, lights, unexplained um, light orbs, if you would. Um, there's a lot of other claims, but I think that those are the ones that are still um, lacking. Um, some kind of an explanation, which kind of pushes it more into the realm of paranormal than normal. Note she mentions battery drains and equipment failure, which is what Kevin Robertson was talking about in the last episode when he visited Braley Pond. Asked on why she thinks this happens. How do I explain this? It's like a draw of energy so that it can be manipulated into a form that kind of helps it pre I don't and I look, sorry I'm stumbling on the words here to make it make sense it preempts the activity so what we see is that you'll notice the drain the battery drain and then you will notice a spike in some type of phenomenon whether that be disembodied voices or the light orbs or um, cold drafts or movement things like that the battery drains tend to happen prior to, right prior to those those experiences. And so the theory is, is that they're pulling, I guess, on those power sources to be able to, to even produce the phenomenon, if that makes sense. I also asked Dawn what she knows about Chris Kennedy's murder. I don't know how you can... I don't know very much about it. I know that he was stabbed a number of times, 13, I believe. I know that he was left um, half in the pond. Um, I know that the people that did it, it was gang-related and that they um, were convicted. Um, he was 19. Um, and I know that that particular incident um, Seems to be the go-to as far as explanation as to what's going on in the area, but I'm not so sure. Um, there's other, there's been other deaths in that area, um, none as as horrific as his. A lot of the times with the stories that you hear about Braley Pond, there's a lot of similarities um, as far as you know, noises in the water and the and the lights and the the um the sounds hearing hearing voices hearing voices that aren't there so the clock tower the train depot and of course braley pond are universally known among the ghost hunting community as the most haunted areas in stanton there's one other place curtis mentions called western state hospital it's absolutely infamous among the paranormal community and though its hauntings are some of the creepiest in the region its history is even more so western state hospital um which is now a hotel um very active, always very haunted, um, was the site of a lot of eugenics work, 
Um, during the 1920s, a lot of my family was exterminated then or sterilized. There's a guy that works, worked with Black Raven that wrote a book about Western State Hospital. That guy is David Sims, a local therapist, teacher, and author of several novels, including Fear the Reaper, which is loosely based on Western State Hospital's dark past. After living in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, he moved to Stanton with his wife, son, and three pets for the area's rich history. He's also been working for Marty Siebel for the past eight years as a tour guide for Black Raven. Western State is one of David's go-to stops on the tour. All right, so the quick synopsis, it was uh, built in 1824 as as your general hospital for um, more for the wealthy people. If you think about the original Betty Ford playing, it's just for anybody who had the money to want to go dry out or trying to recover after pregnancy or whatever um, was was going on, uh, you can do so. And that, when I, that was the, you know, the impetus behind the whole hospital up until, um, and it stayed that way up until uh, 1906 when Joseph Dishonette came in. Um, it was a popular place, I mean, all the way through uh, the state. Um, anybody with money would come and say, listen, I want to spend a couple months in the Shenandoah Valley. I can do this. And people basically um, uh, around town thought it was the most beautiful, beautiful place in town. So the fence that they erected around Western State was actually to keep people uh, out instead of keeping people in because everybody wanted to go and, and picnic and hang out and do things there and there. And the patients originally got, got uh, upset because everybody wanted to come and intrude on their, their mental health and well-being. That guy David mentions, Dr. Joseph Desjardins, founded the Desjardins State Sanatorium in 1932 which was later renamed the Desjardins Center for Human Development. Dr. Desjardins was a prominent Virginia psychiatrist and a strong supporter of the eugenics movement, which gained traction across America from the late 19th century up until the U.S. involvement in World War II. If you're not familiar with it, eugenics was a set of beliefs and practices by certain doctors and scientists to improve human genetic quality. It was, not surprisingly, highly controversial, especially since some saw it as a way to preserve the position of specific dominant groups of the American population. You can probably guess who I'm talking about. Typically, people with disabilities, or who were mentally ill, or poor, or African American, Hispanic, or Native American, were experimented on since they were considered by those who practiced eugenics unfit for society. Yes, um, Joseph Dijonet, uh he was one of the uh, main uh, physicians in the eugenics movement. They brought him out from the West Coast to head up Western State. Again, he came over in 1906. Um, and he was the first physician in the United States to popularize the lobotomy, which is uh, basically taking a metal uh, you know, hammer and going either through the orbital socket or up through the nasal cavity to sever uh, the, um, the uh, frontal cortex uh, you know, you know, from your brain, which would in theory, make you more docile um, and less violent and everything else. But in practice, it, it killed a whole lot of people um, or turned them into uh, zombies. So that was one. Uh, they used a lot of uh, electroshock therapy, which uh, back then uh, it was not well uh, received. Um, and it would basically fry people's brains and uh, it caused a lot of chaos as well. Dr. Desjardins did plenty of other experiments as well, as David points out. They had um, hot and cold treatments where they would, they, uh, for example, uh, 
a woman uh, who was considered uh, hysterical, which is, uh, you know, one of the whole old sexist uh, things there. It's like, okay, we want to control this woman, put her in a bath of cold water, of ice, and move her to hot water back and forth again, and with uh, the thought that it would eventually even run out, which it did because it, it, uh, it killed more patients than it healed. And then transfusions between, say, if uh, you were hyper and I was calm, they would produce a nice little blood, blood transfusion between the two with the thing of equaling out people out. And obviously, most people would die from that as well. Um, so basically, um, very akin to what happened overseas, uh, they had free reign to do whatever they wanted to because once you were admitted to Western State, uh, your name was stripped and they pretty much just gave you a number. So... You know, that sounds familiar. It, it, it is. Eugenics, of course, died down after World War II, and the Desjardins Sanatorium was taken over by the state and was converted into a children's hospital called the Desjardins Center for Human Development. The center was then relocated to a new facility in 1996 and eventually renamed the Commonwealth Center for Children and Adolescents because of, you know, Desjardins' association with eugenics and all. The original building has fallen into ruins since then. While a Western State Hospital is still in operation, it's relocated. But the campus where it stood now houses a condo community called the Villages at Stanton, as well as a boutique hotel called the Blackburn Inn. On the campus of Western State right now, there is um, the Blackburn Inn, which is a, a nice little uh, kind of hotel slash bed and breakfast. Um, you know, and it's right in the administrative building where Joseph Dijonet, uh actually conducted most of his business. Not the experiments, but just the business. Um, and it's, it's a pretty expensive place. It's about close to $200 a night. Um, and we, I've had lots of people come on my tour and talk about things they've experienced there. Uh, where the patients used to stay is now um, a loft apartments area. I asked David about some of the hauntings he's heard about at the former Desjardins State Sanatorium. Um, I do run the, the Ghost of Stan um, uh, tour that, 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 that starts at Western State. Um, and when I was researching the book, I talked to a construction crew that, um, that was involved in the refurbishing of that place. And I uh, talked to several residents who are in the apartment. A few things happen. Uh, one, the most uh, famous one uh, that we've heard about from uh, at least a few hundred people there, um, several times they hear uh, what sounds like a kid's voice over and over again. Uh, and I've heard this from the old Western state, which is off of 81, to the, the, to the original one, where you, you hear the constant uh, vocalization of the word home. Um, and it's always, for some reason, it's always in a kid's voice. Some people David has talked to hear other things, like someone walking across the floor or even smell the heavy scent of cigar, possibly from the ghost of Dr. Desjardins himself. People who stay in the Blackburn Inn, which is the main building, uh, we've heard at least two to two dozen times they wake up in the middle of the night and they hear the sound of hard sole shoes against the uh, the floor. And as they do so, they smell uh, like a heady scent of cigars. Another common haunting story involves doors mysteriously opening on their own. Well, um, the last I mean, the last major story about that is people who live in um, the lofts, which is where the patients were were staying. A lot of times, uh, the doors that are facing outwards will wind up um, facing, uh, you'll wake up in the middle of the night and the doors will be wide open. So we have no idea why that happens, uh, but nothing's stolen, nothing's moved, but just it'll freak people out by happening in the middle of the night. 
David also mentions this interesting tidbit about Western State. Uh, there are at least 10,000 bodies buried on site. Um, which the, the graveyard is overwhelming. And, um, and then we also have the gas chamber there and the crematorium. So think of how many people died there is, um, like, it's unfathomable. You just don't know. If you're like me, the hairs on my arms stood up just thinking about all that cruelty and death in that one area. It reminds me of a concentration camp from the Holocaust. And to think that there's a hotel and a bunch of condos there is more than a little disturbing to me. I have a few degrees in psychology, which I love to delve into some of the, uh, the crossover into the paranormal there with my training. And we figured out for a couple of things. One is that uh, um, through studies at UVA, they've uncovered basically that they think they know what hauntings are. So wait, the University of Virginia, UVA, has a department just for paranormal research? It turns out it does. Within its School of Medicine is a Division of Perceptual Studies, or DOPS, DOPS for short. According to its website, and I quote, Current mainstream science and philosophy portray mind, personality, and consciousness as nothing more than byproducts of brain activity encased within our skulls and vanishing at death. Through its research, DOPS strives to challenge this entrenched mainstream view by rigorously evaluating empirical evidence suggesting that consciousness survives death and that mind and brain are distinct and separable. I mean, that's just a fancy way of saying we're trying to prove ghosts exist, right? Here's what David says, Dobbs discovered about hauntings. It's uh, the magnetism in your body and the electricity in your body that continues on after you you stop uh, breathing. Um, and so what's the greatest, one of the greatest connections of electricity is water. Uh, so we found that underneath Stanton is a huge series of limestone caverns and when they had a cave in um, 110 years ago uh, a little little a little mini grand cavern uh, that opened up on the stand they found out that basically underneath Stanton was um, a raging river it was a massive river uh, that went through the whole town so which only comes out once or twice in town and so you, you put that together with the limestone caverns there's that limestone again just like Don Barry mentioned earlier because so, again, the whole valley is filled with caverns, and most most towns are smart enough to actually build around them. Stanton built on top of them. So if you follow the science about it, uh, you have the river that reaches underneath it with the limestone. Um, and if you do believe in the current studies about um, from several major colleges that paranormal activity is tied to the electricity that that's pushing through your body that does exist after you die, you die um, the amount of, of both negative and positive um, energy coming out afterwards is, is, is phenomenal. It's, um, it's a huge amount, more, almost more so than you would find in a place like, like Gettysburg or somewhere else. So that's, that's the scientific reason behind uh, the haunting that, we, that a lot of people believe in. And I know that we've had people from UVA come out and they checked it out as well. I reached out to UVA to try to speak with someone from the department. So far, I've been rejected by two different faculty members because the nature of this podcast is, well, a bit out there. As we continue, I assure you, it'll only get weirder. But I'll keep trying. I get it. All of this does sound crazy. Shay's experience at Braley Pond and the months after could easily be dismissed as fiction. And you might be thinking the reported hauntings the Stanton ghost hunting community mentioned in this episode could all just be a ploy to drum up business. If you are, then you're not alone. 
so basically back in the the 90s i started out as a ghost hunter always had an interest i mean it's the classic story of pretty much anyone involved in the paranormal i was interested in all that stuff growing up i grew up with shows like in search of and unsolved mysteries so i was really into it got into a ghost hunting team and went around doing the whole basically what you see on tv for a while until i realized you know something's something's not right that's kenny biddle he explores claims of paranormal experiences using science, critical thinking, and a healthy dose of, well, skepticism. He hosts the Skeptical Help Bar podcast, a Q&A show where listeners call in and ask him to analyze their paranormal experiences. He's also the author of the blog, I Am Kenny Biddle, where he investigates supposed claims of paranormal occurrences caught on photos and video. Uh, I enjoy investigating um, from a, a science point of view rather than a pseudoscience point of view, which is basically what most of the ghost hunting is uh i like to deal with facts i like to deal with what's tangible what we can actually test as opposed to giving into belief so my skepticism grew uh, and not i want to say skepticism and and separate it from cynicism because i don't just dismiss things i i do take the time to look into claims i listen to the people that have claims that have experiences and try to figure out what really went on as opposed to um, just just applying a belief and concluding that, you know, it must be a ghost based on belief. Kenny doesn't just investigate ghosts and hauntings. He does it all. UFOs, Bigfoot sightings. If it's supernatural in nature, he'll investigate it. From my perspective, I, I, it's not the I don't believe in, in ghosts or these monsters and stuff because, because there's a lack of evidence. There's a lack of, of sufficient data and hard evidence on them. That's why I don't believe. I hate beliefs. I really do hate beliefs. I, I'd rather have ideas because they're much easier to change. Um, but the idea that ghosts exist just isn't plausible because there isn't enough evidence. And when it comes to the ghost hunters um, that that we see on TV or just in the community, they are amateur hobbyists. Uh, in order to prove something, you really have to use the scientific method. You really do. There's a whole buttload of things that you have to follow. But the fault with the ghost hunting community is that the hobbyists look at TV, they see what is done on TV, and they think if, as long as you have a gadget, you're being scientific. As I mentioned in the first episode of this podcast, I'm not necessarily a skeptic, per se, in the paranormal. When I first started writing my magazine article about Braley Pond, it was never my intent to disprove Shay's experiences there. I just like a good ghost story. But the more I dig into all of this, Chris Kennedy's murder, the paranormal occurrences that have happened in and around Stanton, and even my own experience with the vision of my dead father, I begin to relate it to sort of a religion. I shared this thought with Kenny. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a belief system where, where it parallels a religion because you have this belief in it. And unfortunately, I think many ghost hunters just, they, they give into that belief. Um, and, and they will make sure it, it's pretty much confirmation bias because they want it to be true. And then they, they will literally look for anything that supports their belief. And then they ignore anything that counters their belief. As I talk with Kenny, I keep going back to this theme I have in my head, this theme of connections, whether it's Shay and Don and the energy work they do or Kevin Robertson and the hole he has in his life because his friend Christopher was murdered 
Recep Tinsley, who sits in jail and agreed to talk to me because maybe he feels like he needs to atone for his part in Christopher's murder. Or even Christopher Kennedy himself, who joined a gang because he felt alone and scared. And now, Curtis Lee Weimer and Marty Siebel and their desire to investigate the afterlife. To me, it all seems to fuel some sort of desire to connect with something larger than themselves. A leap of faith, if you will. I mean, isn't that what religion is all about? Brandon Masulo has a different perspective on the paranormal. He's a clinical therapist and parapsychologist in Toledo, Ohio. Ever heard of a parapsychologist? Yeah, I hadn't either until I met Brandon. Parapsychology is, it's a branch of psychology. So like there's social psychology, um, clinical psychology, uh, neuropsychology. There's also parapsychology. And, and basically what parapsychology is, is it's a study of um, uh, psi phenomenon. And psi phenomenon PSI is basically uh, ESP, um, psychokinesis, which is moving things with your mind. Uh, it has a lot to do with telepathy. Uh, it has a lot to do with consciousness. Um, it has uh, all kinds of things to do with sort of these sort of things that are considered paranormal. And one of the things that it does cover is ghosts or the, the idea of survival after death. And this, this idea that... Um, you know, like typical neuropsychology will say that we are pretty much just a collection of um, cells, uh, nerves, memories, uh, and it, we're like a computer. And once the computer breaks, all that stuff goes away. So our memories, our personality, our soul, that all disappears. So sur the survival hypothesis basically says, is there something after that? Do our Does our personality, does our memory is our spirit or soul or whatever you want to say continue to go on after we live? Brandon has a book called The Ghost Studies, New Perspectives on the Origins of Paranormal Experiences. It's a fairly dense book, but one I found fascinating because it's basically an explanation of what ghosts are and why people experience hauntings from a scientific perspective. So it delves into the role energy and electricity, emotions, biogenetics, and the environment play in the supernatural. But a lot of this was a bit beyond my grasp. So I asked Brandon if he could clarify some of his theories in relation to this podcast. In the book, I have a, a couple hypotheses or theories um, about kind of what happens um, or what can cause a ghostly experience to happen or a haunting to occur. And, and one of the things I do is I, I sort of have this, um, you mentioned it's sort of like an equation um, where it's um, psychological factors plus um, internal energy or bioenergetics. Uh, plus external information equals ghostly um, experience. And, and what that really means is um, if we look at in, in parapsychology, in the general world, when we think of ghosts, we think of haunted houses. We think of people going into haunted houses. Uh, and then there's the ghost of someone from the 1800s that kind of hangs around the house. And whoever comes in, it'll haunt them or scare them or tell them to get out. And we kind of think that this is sort of what everyone experiences out there. But actually, the the, the thing that's probably more prominent that, than these haunted house stories is what's called uh, crisis apparitions or spontaneous cases. Crisis apparitions, Brandon explains, happen out of the blue when people aren't expecting them. Usually, those who do experience them have never had a paranormal experience before. So this wouldn't apply to paranormal investigators who actively seek out ghosts or spirits. These types of hauntings happen once, and usually when the person has just faced death. Here's an example of what Brandon is talking about. An example of this is I'm sleeping on some random Tuesday night, uh, and at 1 a.m., uh, a bright 
apparition of my aunt shows up in front of me and she says, uh, I love you. Goodbye. And then that's the end of it. And then I find out the next day that my aunt had passed away at 1am right at the same time that I had that experience or phenomenon happen to me. That's a crisis apparition. It happened once, wasn't reoccurrent. I wasn't expecting it to happen. Um, and I never had another experience again. And then this is just an example. But um, what what we find is that usually there's some sort of connection. There's some sort of psychological phenomenon that's happening. So obviously, if my aunt is dying, um, she's probably going to have a lot of intense emotions. Um, she's going to have a life-threatening experience, whether it's a heart attack or an accident. Her emotions are going to be on pretty high alert. Uh, she's going to be uh, pretty much um, terrified. And when we have these emotions, what we don't know is that it actually impacts our whole body. Uh, and our whole body is sort of made up of energy, electricity, our heart, EEGs, EKGs. This is all electricity, nerve cells. This, we're, humans are a bundle of electricity. So what happens is you have this life-threatening uh, psychological crisis, emotional turmoil. This impacts our internal energy and our internal energy um, sort of leaks out into um, the external world. And then somehow this is some uh, sort of entangled into the world around us. And then um, uh, at some point it, it reaches the, the person across the way. I asked Brandon if he can explain Shea Willis's experience of Braley Pond. Keep in mind, Brad bases theory solely on the original article I wrote in a recorded phone conversation with Shea that I shared with him. I, of course, asked Shea for her permission to do this, and she was fine with it. Paranormal experiences are pretty complex, so there's not really one hypothesis or theory that answers everything. Mm -hmm. um, so you you could have um, you know th th this idea where you know spirits are actually in the world communicating with us. That's a thought. You could have my thought, which is more like there's some sort of telepathic interaction that's happening at intense psychological moments. Um, there could be misinterpretation, there could be fraud. So as we go through looking at a paranormal experience, we have to take into account that there's a lot of things that could be going on. Coming to a definite answer is a very challenging thing to do. Um, in the case that you're talking about at Braley Pond with Shay, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if it fits neatly into any of these categories. Uh, it seems to go across a lot of them. Um, but what you have is if, if, if we want to take a look at it strictly from, from my point of view or, or my hypothesis, um, but what it could be is just sort of um, they're picking up on something in the environment. Uh, and that's, that goes back a long time. That's sort of this um, stone tape theory or place theory, which says if a tragedy happens, somehow it's burned into the environment. Um, electromagnetically and the stones, whatever the theory really comes to. So they're saying that, that the place, there's such a tragedy that happens there that somehow this is burned into the environment and certain people who are sensitive are able to pick up on it. So Shay could be walking through there and pick up on the events that happened and they might present themselves as psychosomatic things like uh, itching, burning, overwhelming emotions, uh, feeling like a sense of a presence, uh, these types of things. So far, this seems to line up, at least in part, with what Shay had described to me. But then there's a theory called extraordinary architectural experiences. There's psychological things that could be happening. Uh, a lot of times we don't really think about 
how sort of places and spaces and the environment really impact our emotions and feelings. So people could walk into a certain location, a building, and sort of just become overwhelmed, start crying, have weakness, nauseated, overwhelming, um, fearful, tears. You know, we think of these pilgrimages when people get to these highly religious uh, places that are very special to them. And when they get in there, they get overwhelmed because of all the history and the stories about it. Um, and they fall to their knees. These are called extraordinary architectural experiences. And they're pretty common to some degree. You know, we think about it in terms of religion, but it doesn't, it happens outside of religion too. Um, you know, there are guys who follow a certain sports team their whole life. And when they walk into the actual stadium, they become overwhelmed and start crying and have things like that because of the history and the story that goes on with that. So you could have a person walk into a place and just be sort of overwhelmed with all the stories and the intensities and, you know, other people sort of saying, oh, this is going on here too. Um, and we have this desire to step out of the mundane. We have a desire to just experience something that's not of this world. Uh, and you mix all these things together and it does impact us psychologically. Throughout our conversation, Brandon offers other theories as well, but he never once directly dismisses Shay's experiences as something she's completely fabricated. For Shay and other members of the Stanton Paranormal community, one thing is true. It's a passion and everyone seems to have fun doing it, which makes for a tight knit community, at least for the most part, according to David Sims. Everybody for the most part gets along and everybody supports each other pretty well. Um, so it's, it's, it's nice because I've had people coming from Richmond, from Williamsburg, from Gettysburg, from North Carolina, um, DC, uh, and they, they would always love to, um, uh, pout and kind of advertise and kind of, you know, give us some publicity all over the place. They're just, it's a, it's a really nice community. It's kind of like the writing community where writers, writers build each other up and support each other. And that's what I'm seeing with the paranormal community as well. It's, uh, so it's kind of a nice little brotherhood there. But that doesn't mean there isn't competition among other paranormal groups in the region. Here's Marty Siebel again. I've had people that have uh, literally stole stuff off our page, photographs, copyright stuff, people that have done things with our website. I've had my website hacked, you know, uh, in the past. Uh, it's, it's competitive, mm -hmm. you know. And there's nothing more aggravating than people to just put stuff out for a scare or for the thrill. Um, and it's really bullshit. But occasionally, just like any other community, there are members who are a little more controversial than others. Too, if you have any integrity about your reputation and, <clears throat> you know, what you stand for, anybody that comes into your group can, can hurt that. Um, mm -hmm. And we've had that happen. I think, and I've dealt with a lot of different people. I, I tell people, too, I, and I really mean this. Through my personal experiences through 20 years, people think, <clears throat> you know, and I think a lot, I blame a lot on television because of the ideology they put out there and it's, you know, the scare factor <clears throat> and things with demonic. I really feel you have more to fear from the living than the dead. One of the more controversial paranormal investigators in the Stanton community is a man named Logan Gwynn. He moved to Stanton a few years ago and as of the release of this podcast has moved back to his native state of Florida. When my article about Shay's experiences at Braley Pond was originally published, Logan found me on Facebook and sent me a private message. I asked Logan to do a dramatic reading. Here's just some of what it said. My wife and I are heading back to Braley Pond once again after our first account of 
taken out one of the known Creeper entities back in November. The Creeper that attacked Shay Willis is now gone, but two more are out there. Okay, Logan, you have my attention. This is a long message, but please bear with me. It's worth it. By the way, this isn't even close to all of it. Logan goes on to write, I'm sure you have heard of the terms used shadow people or creepers. These are, as best to our knowledge so far, beings that use dark matter to travel. At first we suspected interdimensional beings, but as of recent education, they are intergalactic travelers that use purported gates to connect points through space-time. It is really a tad complex for even my understanding, and it sounds straight out of science fiction, but I dare to tell you honestly, these bastards are very real. Hear that, Gravitas? This guy is going for dramatic effect, and it's working. He continues. Sometimes these souls, they become lost. Ergo, you get apparitions, ghosts. Because the soul does not have a brain to store information, they are devoid of real thoughts or speech. They become emotional beings and are more or less felt, not really heard or seen. So these shadow beings come here to Earth and hunt these lost souls like food. They eat souls. This means that soul will never return to Earth again. As I read Logan's message, I kept thinking, as you might be, this guy is nuts. But also, I can't help but be intrigued. Don't worry, there's more. A shadow gate connects a point on Earth to a point in the shadow people's world, which we believe to be from a solar system in the Pleiades star system or the Seven Sisters. Ever see a dark shadow suddenly become darker and then just gone? Ever heard of the 1970s Boogeyman? The Shadow. Shadow People. Even the Tall Man and the Old Crone were well known in the 80s as Night Terrors. Now, of course, these entities are now long gone because they were hunted and destroyed. But new ones do resurface, and we have finally learned of these portals that these Pleiadians seem to be coming through. Once our research is complete at Braley Pond, we will be able to show proof of our findings and how to locate, identify, and destroy the portal of entry these beings are using. So that puts a spin on Shay's experiences at Braley Pond, huh? Is he saying that Christopher Kennedy's soul was eaten by one of these shadow people he mentioned, and that Shay was attacked by this very same entity? It's all very confusing, kind of insane. But I'll be honest, I'm intrigued by this slogan guy, and I can't wait to meet him. What Happened at Braley Pond is produced by me, Charlie Moss. The exceptional Bill Colrus is our story editor. Our music and sound design are by the legendary Mike Triplecock. Our website, which can be found at www.braileypondpodcast.com, was created by the outstanding Ashton Lance. Our podcast logo was designed by the phenomenal Shelton Brown. Additional artwork is by the incredibly patient Keith Finch. Special thanks to Monty Brock for his scientific insight 
and my wife, Vanessa, who was overwhelmingly supportive during this three-year process. 